There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach specializing in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. We have a terrific guest today. Dr. Douglas Slakey is professor and chief of surgical services at Christ Medical Center in Chicago, actually Oak Lawn, Illinois, and program director of general surgery residency at Advocate Aurora Health. Dr. Slakey's responsibilities include clinical operations and strategy for inpatient and outpatient adult and pediatric surgical services. His mission is to advance and promote safety, outcomes effectiveness, and value-based practices across all surgical disciplines to maintain a collaborative interdisciplinary environment for patient-centric tertiary and quaternary surgical care and related surgical service lines. His responsibilities also include medical education, research, financial management, contracting, and strategic planning. Dr. Slakey has an active surgical practice involving advanced surgery for pancreas and liver disease, kidney transplantation, and dialysis access. He has broad experience in developing innovative techniques for accessing reliability of medical systems and in medical education and training, including the use of simulation. His research and international medical education experience includes the application of human factors and team training to improve outcomes, healthcare, efficiency, and patient safeties. So welcome, Dr. Slakey, to It's All About Skills. Oh, well, thank you, Charlie, for that amazing introduction. Uh, I hope it's a great segue into the conversation today. I'm well, really well, looking forward to Well, it's well-deserved, I got to tell you, Dr. Slakey. And to start, let's go back a few years. Tell us about where you grew up, where you went to high school, and the lessons you learned about skills. You know, it's, it's interesting how I think things really do develop over the course of a lifetime journey and a career journey. I grew up in uh, Northern California, actually a bit of a rarity, a fourth generation Californian. On my mother's side, we had relatives uh, in San Francisco before gold was discovered. And uh, went to high school at Miramani, which was the local high school in Arenda, California. And then ultimately decided to stay local and carry on the family tradition of going to the University of California at Berkeley. 
So uh, you chose the University of California at Berkeley because of your native residence there. But what, what prompted you to major in history? Yeah, so that was, I, I think that really sort of capitalizes um, or is indicative of a lot of my philosophy in that being well-rounded and having a broad interest um, really allows you to relate inter, in an interdisciplinary way to, to how people, places, time all interacts. And so I was always fascinated with history, not just memorizing dates and places, but the way history, when it's really taught at that level, conceptualizes how the human condition and environment and social and economic factors really set the stage for major historical changes and advancements. I always knew that I wanted to go into medicine, but I was fascinated with history. So I thought by majoring in history as well as simultaneously pre-med that uh, I would really be able to capitalize on all my interests. And one of the fascinating things that I think has really stayed with me and taught me a lot is that uh, the study of history really, I think at its core helps you understand how human beings from different backgrounds, different environments, different geography really do interrelate and uh, how important those relationships are. You bet. Well, it's impressive that you, uh, you, you, you knew that you were headed toward perhaps a career in medicine or public health or, or something of the sort, but you, you, you focused on, on a, a major that, that, you, that had your, your interest in history and that sort of thing. And that's really, really important. That's, that's a major thing that uh, I know I always recommend people to do. And then you went to graduate school after graduation from uh, the University of California, and you, you went to study public health and infectious diseases. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it, it was a fascinating time actually in the mid 1980s when, when of course the uh, AIDS had just started to um, be discovered and, and thought about. Um, so I became really intrigued by epidemiology and infectious disease. And in fact, I guess it's really, really relevant to today. I initially thought of going ahead on a PhD program with aspirations of uh, someday working at the CDC or the like. Um, but I, I actually, with, within a year or so, I decided that my path was probably more in line with a surgical career, uh, although I, I wanted to maintain uh, this understanding and passion for epidemiology as, as a component of that. Uh, so I actually opted out early and applied to medical schools that at the time had an early decision. And um, that's how I wound up at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Well, what, what actually made you decide, you, you hinted on it a little bit, but what made you decide to go into medicine? Uh, well, I think I was one of those um, 
people that was was I, I think convinced that I could um, I think be very um, interactive with people. Uh, that that I think is is a, a fundamental aspect of my decision that I, I never saw myself as being um, isolated um, within an, four walls of an office or or in a laboratory or something like this. That that I always really uh, was looking for a career path where I could do something. Um, you know, people often say they wanted to help people, but I think. I think it's not just helping people that motivated me, although that's clearly a component, but I think more than that, it's, I think, better said that I wanted to be able to do something where I could give back um, to people um, on, a, on sort of an individual and, and simultaneously a broader scale, give back um, my enthusiasm, my interest, um, I, do, I do think over time, I've really come to understand uh, what compassion uh, really means and entails. And so uh, I do my best to incorporate that uh, in my um, career. So I think it was, it was really a combination of those things. And then the other thing that I do believe is inevitably an influence for most people is direction provided by family, friends, and educators, that that, that, that that mix of people provide you some insight into uh, where they see your passion and um, ability. So you went to medical school and you went through that whole process and your training in medical school and your residency in surgery and so forth, ultimately drew you to focus on transplant surgery. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's that's actually a story that really uh, shows how circumstance can play a huge role in um, in in one's path in life. So well, let, let's actually, go for that. Let's go for yeah. that. Yeah. Well, actually, at the um, end of my first year of residency. At the time, we were doing uh, trauma surgery, and that was 36 hours on and uh, 24 hours off, so they were long shifts. And we had young twin daughters, and uh, I got off at seven in the morning, and my wife was working full-time, so I took them to daycare. And then as I left the daycare, I was at a stoplight and got rear-ended by a person going 35 miles an hour who never uh, touched their brakes. And long story short, I wound up tearing two nerve roots in my back and tried to go back to the residency, uh, but couldn't and wound up at three months of bed rest. Oh my God. During, during that period, I thought, oh, I might have to completely change my career because it wasn't clear I could stand and operate. The transplant surgery team who I had rotated with, the faculty, they reached out to me and said, we know you're off. We'd love for you to do some research that actually at the beginning I could do at home, chart work and things. 
And then that uh, materialized into a full year of research. Uh, my first international presentation came out of that work. And so I was really inspired by uh, these three faculty members who um, just went out of their way to, to help me make it through this, uh, this unexpected um, perturbation in my training. Wow, wow. You know, the, the, uh, there, there, there are two sets of skills here. You know, one set is clearly the, the skills that you learned as a physician, uh, your medical and surgical skills, which are incredible and substantial. And the other set of skills are those that enable you to succeed not only as a physician, but ultimately as an administrator and an educator. You had a wonderful career as a transplant surgeon, as an educator and the like. And after you completed all your training and the initial uh, experiences you had in surgery, and as you look back, what were, kind, what were the kinds of skills that you learned outside of your medical skills? Yeah, so the, I think there are several things that um, really stick out in, in my mind. One is furthering my appreciation of uh, different um, socioeconomic um, realities. And, and I will say this relates to the practice of medicine, but uh, it, as you know, I spent a year in Oxford, England, working as um, what in this country we call a fellow there. Uh, it's called a senior registrar. And I, I worked with one of the, the pioneering teams of kidney transplants. So I did yes. kidney transplant and uh, vascular surgery there. And what that taught me, um, it really opened my eyes to start to think about how different healthcare systems worked. And I think that experience really made me want to, at some point in my life, be involved at more of a, a system level. I started to recognize that you can focus on the individual, which is very important, but then as you start to gain experience and those skills that you can multiply your effectiveness by helping other people help people, if that makes sense. So it really is this idea that sometimes letting go of, and I think this is one of the big lessons, is letting go of control and shifting to more of an influencer can have an amazing impact. Uh, I think it has to, at least in medicine, that has to be done at the right stage when you have legitimacy and credibility and can establish a trust uh, in relationship with others. Um, but that was a huge uh, lesson for me. Yeah, and your, 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 your medicine and medical skills in terms of a transplant surgeon were exceptional. I mean, your, your competency in that world were, you know, 
unquestionable. But what drew you into the world of academia? And you know, what kind of skills uh, were necessary for you to be effective in the teaching roles of what you had learned and how you wanted to communicate those to others? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of answers to that question. I think early on, um, what drew me to academia was, was honestly uh, probably a bit of uh, ego and drive. And from that, I mean that really I wanted to learn from and be associated with people who were leading the field, who were not afraid to innovate and um, uh, embark upon new strategies, but, 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 but by the same token, with a real focus and drive for evidence and uh, proof of concept. So I think that was one, one of the drivers there. From the perspective of education, I really see that my skills in that area have evolved. Initially, initially my focus was on transmitting what I knew directly to others, um, almost an apprenticeship type model to, to have people watch and work with me and learn by doing it. And ideally there's some feedback and a dynamic there. It should not be a one-way street. Certainly I learned from learners and I think that contributed um, substantially to who I am today. And then layered on top of that, Charlie, was this idea that at some point I could move into what I call more of a coaching role in academia. Um, a role where instead of getting people to do what you want them to do, which is the first sort of skill, the second skill, that coaching role, is getting people to achieve what they didn't even believe they could achieve, to actually influence people to become better at whatever it is, a technical skill, an intellectual skill, um, thought process, publications, you know, it, it runs the gamut for sure. But to really influence people uh, to try to achieve their maximum potential. So, so I see that as perhaps two sides of the same coin, but one focused at more of an individual level and the next focused um, a little bit more at a, as a group dynamic. Well, what you, you, you developed this interest and you evolved in this interest when you were heading the surgical uh, group and so forth at uh, Tulane University. Uh, and and you, you uh, what evolved from that? Are you developed? Yeah, so, yeah go so ahead. I, yeah, I, I think you really, you have to take a small step back uh, to actually Hurricane Katrina. Ah. At, the time, at the time of Hurricane Katrina, I was the head of the transplant program and, and, and we were quite a big at that time doing a, a couple of hundred transplants a year. And 
that was a truly a pivotal moment for me. And I think this is one of the uh, almost similar to that uh, accident I had at the end of the first year of residency where um, throughout my career, I've really I've been influenced by sort of seismic shifts, as it were. And, and instead of looking at the negatives at the time, I've always really tried to find the positives and how I personally could be a part of the solution. So after Hurricane Katrina, I really took that opportunity and other people encouraged me to, I certainly did not do it in a vacuum, but took that opportunity to see what could I do to help reconstitute healthcare within um, Southern Louisiana and the area devastated by the hurricane. And that, and, and they, really you had to look at the different components. So you had to look at the patient care component how could I help bring people back to care for the patients? How could we really identify priorities of patient need as the recovery went over? And then the, the second component uh, that was related to that was to start to think about those administrative skills that you needed to facilitate the work people wanted to do to help them. Uh, with that work. So, you know, some people wound up leaving the area, moving out, um, but, and then we had to recruit and backfill those positions. So, so how to prioritize and how to establish um, the right financial um, and other incentives to get people back to where they needed to be. And then the third component was really to think about how education could play a pivotal role in that rebuilding process. Uh, and I'm a, a firm believer that education can be a core building block to establishing not only the need to, to meet the current needs, but also to establish a pathway to the future, which ensures security uh, a pipeline of talent, as it were, across a continuum. Uh, and, and to do that, you really need to think not about today or tomorrow, but you need to think, you know, three, five, 10 years down the line, what do you envision uh, being there? And then make your educational program and paradigm aligned with those long range needs. You bet. And then, you know, you had that experience at Tulane and with Katrina, which must have been traumatic. Uh, and not only, not only for the people that were there, but for you personally. But then, then you, 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 you came to Chicago. I'm delighted that you came to Chicago because we developed a friendship and, and, and that. And, but, but, but what drew you to Chicago? Well, what really drew me was, um, an opportunity that was presented to me that I think really focused my attention on um, what, uh, what my passion had evolved into. And this was actually um, 
not an easy decision. I, I, like in many professions, in the medical professions, people tend to uh, identify by what they do. Uh, in the case of a surgeon, what kind of surgeon are you? A transplant surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or whatever the case might be. I could, and and, and I'll just take a, a slight uh, deviation back. One of the things I started doing with my students years ago when they first began in surgery, I'd give them a piece of paper and I'd say, write down uh, one or two words that describe you. And inevitably they would write surgeon. And I said, uh -huh. no, that's what you do. That's not who you are. Yes. And I, I think that's a critical lesson because sometimes we conflate the two and, and we think what we do is who we are. So anyway, my journey to Chicago really, truly, I think, um, was a culmination of a growing interest I had in trying to think through how can we use modern strategies for data and information management to really understand how in the surgical or procedural space we can define and commit ourselves to providing value to the individual patient and to populations of patients. And by value, I really mean quality um, divided by cost, which was uh, initially um, conceived of by Michael Porter. And, and, but I think that's a, a great way to, to think through it. I think that's fantastic. I really love uh, your comment about discovering who you are. And you discovered who you are and you came to Chicago and you developed an interest in about how healthcare organizations can use data and predictive modeling to anticipate patients' needs and optimize resources in advance of sur surgical procedures. I mean, you're looking ahead uh, in terms of predicting outcomes of surgery, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this has been something which has really fascinated me for uh, several years and, and is one of the main reasons that um, I gravitated towards this position in Chicago. So when you think about healthcare or more broadly high risk or high reliability industries, you know, people always compare, uh, often compare healthcare to the airline industry, transportation or petroleum industries. So when you really think about how you want to look at optimizing patient outcomes, you do have to think about risk, but risk isn't necessarily so simple. And I, I can give you one quick example. So you know, you could for you could have two patients with diabetes, okay. um, both the same on paper, but one patient has a very supportive household uh, with a lot of resources. The other patient could be single, public housing with no transportation, who lives, let's say, in a food desert. Even though on paper they might look the same, 
common sense would tell us the needs of those two people is vastly different. And so really what I started thinking about and what we're working on now is how do we individualize care, but from the perspective of acknowledging the realities that each person um, lives under. And I, I think really that that goes all the way you can trace that all the way back to my interest in thinking through how the different facets of human genetics, physiology, socioeconomic factors all play a role in really determining who we are at that moment. And in the case of healthcare, or more specifically, a surgical procedure, what our needs might be. Overall, I, I would say that um, one of the, the skills I've really tried to develop is to understand people and their resource needs more as individuals than as, as just numbers or, or data points within um, the electronic health record. And we have, to, we have to step back and, you know, think in a humanistic way, but at the same time, use those ethically, use the tools that are available to us to paint a picture or, or build an image of need and reality at the point where we're just working with the patient to decide what they might need or benefit most from. You, so you're, you're, you're going into one of the critical skills about information. You, you really are digging deep into the, the, the needs of the patient of the, beyond just the, uh, the medical uh, aspects of a particular situation, but you, 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 are, you are digging into really, you know, what, what counts in terms of a, uh, you know, a, you know, a medical situation, right? Is that, am I getting it right? Yes, I think you're, I, I, I think you are totally correct in, in what I'm thinking. And, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, honestly, when you use the word information, because what we've been fairly consistent good at in medicine is getting points of data. And points of data in and of themselves only give us a shadow of what reality is. What we really, I believe, need to do is be able to move from data to information. And information is where you garner the power to do the right thing at the right time. Data might tell us what the average prediction is across a population based on some factor, but it doesn't really tell us, you know, it would be sort of like the weatherman. He could tell you the, or woman, the weather person, he could, they, <laughs> they could tell you the barometric pressure and the wind direction. But what you and I really wanna know is 
Is it a good day to go sailing? Do we need an umbrella, a jacket, or should we be wearing shorts? That's the <laughs> difference between data and information. And that's really where we need to go in healthcare. And I, I would submit that both the, the physician side, the nursing physician provider side, and the patient side, what they really want, what everyone desires is information because, you know, th this is another uh, sort of lesson I learned a long time ago. I think with a very, very rare exception, I think we can safely say that the average person wants to do the right thing when they interact with other people. So a doctor-patient relationship but sometimes the information that they need at the time is just simply not there. There's, there's a vacuum. And our vision going forward is to make that information seamlessly available and as accurate as possible so that we can help people do what they inherently want to do, which is the right thing. So you're suggesting, and I totally agree with you, that the extraction of the appropriate kinds of information up front, not after the fact, but up front can dramatically affect the outcome. Yeah, 100%. We need to move, um, and this is what we're trying to do today, is to get people to move from reactive or recovery, we're, we're, we're really pretty good at recovery in healthcare. So if we, if we tell somebody you have a 10% chance of an infection, well, at the time that's kind of meaningless, right? And most people don't make a decision based on that information. And, and the way we use it is if you get an infection, um, we might look a little bit more aggressively if we think you're high risk. And when we recognize it, we institute a recovery pathway or a treatment sooner. But what we really want to do is move from that recovery mindset, how do I get out of trouble, to one which is much more proactive, how do I prevent oh, you getting got it. into you trouble? Got it. You got it. You're talking about preemptive information. <laughs> you know, preemptive information. How can I find out, you know, how can I preempt information to, you know, to, to prevent the negative outcome? Right, and, and, then, and then you really get to the point, and you have to be careful uh, because the, this sort of thinking can tread on some dangerous ethical ground, for example, uh, withholding treatment from people who otherwise deserve it. So, so that has to be part of the, the dialogue. However, what we really want is to make sure that people are optimized or in the best possible uh, state when they receive a treatment. Now, if it's an emergency, obviously that's you know a different story, but but the, but the reality is, fortunately, most of what we do 
uh, is uh, elective and thought out and should be planned ahead of time. You bet. Well, this is fabulous, uh, Dr. Slakey. You're, you talk about the importance of data and information to uh, preempt negative outcomes. That, that kind of information is available to you if you just look for it or you, you, you seek for it, you know. Uh, I don't know what to say. I just think that it's uh, fabulous. I just well, think it, it, it's it a makes, great idea. Yeah, it makes sense. But, but this gets to another, uh, another uh, skill um, paradigm because really what, what we're starting to talk about now is thinking through what most people would term culture change, but, but even uh, system changes. And one of the things that we really have to grapple with in healthcare at least, is how do we move the thought process from the individual who's doing the work, sort of the traditional fee-for-service model, how do we move from that while still recognizing that those skills are important. You know, you have to recognize the contributions of the surgeon or the radiologist or the obstetrician, whatever the case might be. But, but we have to move from paying people from doing things to more of an ability to pay people for how patients do. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big culture shift. And so I find as I uh, sort of grapple with these concepts and, and it's one thing to think through the concepts and put those, um, uh, you know, use modern technology and, and predictive analytics to work, to move from that to then gaining the trust and acceptance of people to be able to think differently about their day-to-day -day work environment and how they contribute. Um, and that's a, that's a challenging skill, I'll be honest, to really, in, in many people's minds, you're uprooting a longstanding tradition that they're very comfortable with, that they trained in, that they aspired to for years, and to acknowledge at the leadership level to acknowledge that those are just, that you're proposing potentially disruptive um, new constructs is, is difficult for people to readily accept. Wow. Well, I, I, I will tell you, Dr. Slake, you've had a fabulous career. I mean, you've, you've not only, uh, uh, met your challenges in terms of an incredible competent surgeon in terms of uh, transplant, uh, so forth. But you've looked forward in your thinking in terms of how to, how to improve patient outcomes. And uh, it, 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 such forward thinking, I just admire that so much in you. And uh, I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. That's awfully kind. Thank you very much. It's, you know, I think honestly that some of my willingness to 
take these challenges on. I, I do feel they're challenges, they're exciting challenges, but they're challenges is actually working with people like yourself who may not be in medicine per se, but have the ability to think through the organizational, operational, and the other skills that you need to be able to literally step out of your comfort zone, take a risk, and try to inspire people to see a vision which is somewhat different and hopefully better than what they're currently mired in on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, you are a poster child of uh, someone who can stand out there and take a risk and, uh, and, and express your feelings about what's needed in terms of being better in medicine, in terms of, of outcomes and that sort of thing. And you've had a fabulous career, Dr. Slaky. And may, may I ask this? And I know this is, uh, you know, probably a little bit, uh, a little bit out there. But what's next for you? I mean, you've done so much. You're a, you're a fabulous surgeon. You're a fabulous researcher. You've done so much in terms of improving medical care. What's next for Dr. Doug Slaky? <laughs> well, I think. It's hard to know because I don't know what the next big seismic shift is going to be. Um, so I keep an open mind. But I think, I think in general, I would really like to continue to be able to find new pathways uh, to inspire people um, to see a different vision. And even more importantly, to be willing to believe that they can do more in a positive, constructive way than uh, they ever believed. I think, I think one of the things, I, I think this quote might be attributable to Steve Jobs, but it really resonates with me that as you, as you think about you know, what truly is leadership, especially in medicine, versus management. Um, this quote, which says, management is the task of making people do what they inherently don't wanna do. And leadership is inspiring people to do more than they think they could do. That's what I really see as my future. I really want and hope to be able to continue to either through deeds or words or actions, be able to make people think they can truly be part of making a difference, be part of being better at helping patients uh, at the individual and the population level. So whatever the next you know, turn in my career path is, I'll be open to it. And um, I, I really see in my current role, honestly, a, a tremendous amount of opportunity. And I've been really blessed uh, by having people who believe in what I say. And, um, and uh, in some ways, I'll tell you, helping me come down from sort of the, sometimes the 30,000 foot level to uh, the day-to-day -day level and 
Um, I, I'm very fortunate to have um, and continue to be able to work with some really fantastic visionary people. Well, I can tell you one thing from an outside observer and as a friend, you are Dr. Doug Slakey, uh, the embodiment of a leader. Well, and that's awfully I want, kind. I want to, uh, I want to uh, uh, compliment you on that. And finally, let's just, let's just, let's just uh, suppose you were giving a high school commencement address and you wanted to conclude by summarizing the kind of skills that students should master, not necessarily whether they're going into medicine or whatever, regardless of the career. Uh, what would those skills be? You're the sage and you're <laughs> there and you're going, you're, you've given your address and you're saying, finally, students, I want to tell you that now it's up to you. So I, honestly, I think you can sum it up in one word, which is be compassionate. And to expand upon the, the concept of compassion, I think, you know, first of all, we should try to listen to others and understand. That's a huge component of compassion. Um, even if people's views might not be directly in line with ours or, or um, you know, we might not understand everything about them or their history. The second uh, aspect of it, I think, is really to, I'm going to have to take a pause here for a sec. So, so the, this, I apologize. No problem. You can edit, you can edit that out. But, I won't edit it out. This is wonderful. <laughs> The, the second component of compassion, I think, is to realize that fundamentally, our responsibility is to help other people. And if we can't do that, at least don't harm other people. And then the third aspect of compassion <coughs> is really being, I believe, a resource to others. And yeah, that comes in many different forms. Um, and, and, you know, I've been blessed to have been able to interact with people as their surgeon, uh, as an educator, and then as someone who uh, had, tries to see the benefits of different pathways forward. So I think really those three sort of components um, speak to the global concept of compassion. And I think, I, I think if you have that focus, then everything else falls into place and you can't help but be successful. Well, I think that's sage advice. And uh, Dr. Slakey, this has been wonderful. And I wanna thank you so much for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. And as for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com. 
So I want to thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we just discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.